Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. All right. Well, good morning, Mercy family. It is good to be with you this morning. Special shout out to my Northeast family tuning in from the other area of our town. So glad to have you all with us today. Listen, you guys might not know this, but Mercy Church just celebrated its seventh birthday a few weeks back. Yeah. Yeah, let's praise God for all that he has done at Mercy, and let's continue to ask him together to do far more than we could imagine or even ask of in the years to come. Well, my wife and I actually share birthday months with Mercy. Uh, Meredith's birthday is tomorrow, and my birthday was last weekend, so to honor us, I'm going to have the band come back up and sing happy birthday to me. No, I'm just kidding. All kidding aside, I do actually really love celebrating birthdays. Um, they're just, it's just a great time to reflect on the last year and all that's happened uh, and look forward to the next year and the things that you're hoping to see. There's something special about our birthdays uh, and I think unique, something about the newness of life uh, that comes when a baby is born. Even though our life begins before our birth, the day of our birth marks a key moment where we leave our mama's belly and face the world outside in a new and unique way. And today's story, we're actually going to be talking a little bit about birth and life, but specifically rebirth and new life. And my hope is to show you guys this simple truth, that true life must first be new life. And what we're going to see today is that Eternal life is the only real life, the only true life. But before we can experience this true life, we need to experience new life. And John, our author of the book that we're studying, wrote this book so that people would come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that through believing this, they would find life in his name, true life. So with that in mind, let's go to God and pray for our time together and then we'll keep going. God, I want to thank you for this opportunity to uh, get together with your people and to look into this beautiful word. Uh, Lord, thank you for preserving it all these years and allowing us to sit in a room with lots of people and read it and hear it. And Lord, I pray that it would just transform our lives. I pray that you would use me as uh, your mouthpiece, Lord, that you would speak to my heart, to the hearts of the people that have come this morning, that have tuned in online or, or up at Northeast. Lord, we want to see you move in power, so we ask that you would do it in faith. We love you, and we are here for you and you alone. In your name we pray all these things. Amen. Hey, if you have your John journal this morning, um, we're actually going to be on page 14 and 15. You can just cross out the date. It's a different date in there and add today's date. The passage, the words on your journal are correct. It says John 2, but it is actually John 3. We are going to be in John 3, 1 through 21. 
And I don't know if note taking to you is something that's new or maybe you don't do it, but I would encourage you to take notes when you come here on Sunday mornings. One, it's going to help you to remember what you're hearing, uh, to take note of what God might be speaking to you. And two, it's going to give you a jumping off point for your time in the Word throughout the week. You can pull up your journal, pull up your notes, and, and dig deeper into, into God's Word. Maybe you've been in this habit for a long time. Maybe this is something new to you. But getting into God's Word, listen, guys, daily will transform your life. And sermon notes or this journal or any tool like this can help with that. So with that being said, y'all ready? Yeah. All right. I had to do that because Pastor Spence always does it and he's coming back soon. So I wanted to get you guys prepared for him. Um, All right. Let's start with a quick recap. So after John, our author, finishes his introduction in chapter one, making the point that Jesus is God, he jumps right into Jesus's ministry and some stories of Jesus interacting with various people and doing various things. John is going to lay out in the next several chapters, Jesus confronting various societal and institutional religious pillars of his day. And all of this is to show us that Jesus is bringing something new. Last week, we heard from Pastor Josh about the two stories of Jesus, one at the wedding in Cana and two in the temple that had been turned into a marketplace. And John is showing us through these stories and many to come glimpses of how Jesus is upending the religiosity of his day, of the people of this time, and beginning to show that Jesus is bringing about a new way of being cleaned or purified, a new way of worshiping God, a new way of living And John ends chapter 2 with something quite powerful that sets up our story today. So take a look with me at chapter 2, verse 23. While he was in Jerusalem referring to Jesus during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them and because he did not need anyone to testify about man. For he himself knew what was in man." Our story today begins with a new character on the scene, and we will in fact see that Jesus knew what was in this man. And here's why I mentioned this this morning to us, church. As we dig into this word, as we take the next period of time and set it aside to to hear me talk, we're going to dig into a conversation between two rabbis that takes place late in the evening. And as we unpack what might be one of the most commonly known verses in all of the Bible, I want us to understand that he knows what is inside of man. He knows what is inside of woman. He knows what is inside of you and me this morning. Now that thought might scare you a little bit, right? It should. Think about it for a second. Imagine that if we could all see your thoughts. Imagine if we could see all of your motivations. Imagine if we could put on this screen all of your fantasies. It's not just the things that we would be embarrassed of that Jesus knows, though. He knows what makes you happy. He knows what makes you laugh. He knows what scares you the most. He knows what triggers deep hurt. This verse is saying that God or Jesus knows these things. And listen, they matter to him. My friend, the fact that Jesus knows what is inside of you this morning can be terrifying. But when you combine this fact 
with a knowledge of who Jesus actually is and what he's actually like, it can give you a deep, deep confidence in his abounding love. The fact that God knows you and yet he still wants you is proof that God is love. With that in mind, let's get into our text. Picking up in verse 1. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him, referring to Jesus, at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs unless signs you do unless God were with him. All right, so I want us to notice a few key things that help to set the stage for this dialogue, this conversation. First, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Second, Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews. And third, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. I'm pointing these things out because it's going to help us shape our understanding of this conversation. We need to know a few things about who Nicodemus is before we can understand Jesus' responses to him. And I think the more we get to know Nicodemus, the more we may be able to identify with him and relate to his journey. So what's the significance of these three things? Well, first of all, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. This meant that he was a religious expert. He knew the law and the prophets were the Bible, most likely better than anyone around him. Others would have looked to him as an authority, as a teacher on these things. Secondly, he was a ruler among the Jews. Now, this most likely meant that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, and thus he would have had significant political influence and power over his society. The Sanhedrin was a governing council that worked in Roman Palestine with all of the different powers that be, and they were responsible for Jewish affairs. So this means that when Jesus shows up on the scene wreaking havoc in the temple market, when word gets out that some Galileans were talking to one another about a man from Nazareth who was the son of God, and when there were these trending stories, stories of signs and miraculous wonders being performed by this unknown man who's being called by some the Messiah, Nicodemus would have heard about this. And now he wouldn't have just heard and then moved on without batting an eye. No, he would have felt something when he heard these things. Have you ever heard of somebody and then felt something in your core in response? Maybe threatened by their influence, maybe curious or suspicious about who they actually are, what their real motives actually are. Well, no doubt Nicodemus may have felt some of these same things, and maybe that's why he came to Jesus at night. Under the cover of darkness, and likely after finishing his shift at the local synagogue, he sneaks into a meeting with this man that he had been hearing about. He needed to see for himself what this Jesus was all about. I mean, he at least knew that Jesus was somehow from God. He saw the evidence, but he needed to investigate further. And maybe that's you today. You're here because you want to see what this Jesus guy is all about. Maybe you too are powerful and have significant influence in your world. Maybe you often find yourself being the smart one in the room. Maybe you can relate to Nicodemus in this strange mix of curiosity, courage, and timidity that is on display. Well, just as Jesus knew what was inside of Nicodemus as he approached him that evening, he too knows what is inside of you as you approach mercy this morning, as you clicked on this video or podcast, and we're going to hear from Jesus in a minute, and we're going to get to hear why he came 
So regardless of what he sees inside of you this morning and how that might make you feel, sit tight. He's got something for you. Now, here's why I think that John, our author, is including this discourse between Jesus and Nicodemus in this book. Remember, John's goal is that the readers of this writing would come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that they would come to believe that Jesus is God. And he inserts what is most likely just snippets of a conversation that takes place between Jesus, this mysterious rabbi who is gaining a following, establishing signs of his power, speaking very authoritatively about this new thing that's happening, and then Nicodemus, this other rabbi who's likely rich, powerful, and an influential man himself. I think that John is including this conversation because his original readers, much like us, often thought that knowledge or power or wealth or gender or political party determines our ability to see God, to know God, like as if God is only interested in the people that our society platforms as important. God is too high and lofty to be interested in the lowly or the losers, the have-nots, but not this God. Stick with the book of John, you'll see. Let's look together at verse 3. We're going to read a lot here, so buckle up. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can these things be? Nicodemus asked. Are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. All right, there's a lot of stuff in this dialogue here. So let me try and explain and summarize this for you. Nicodemus, this Pharisee and ruler, is curious to investigate more about who Jesus actually is. He comes to him at night and he acknowledges that Jesus too is a respectable rabbi and that it's clear that God is with him. Now Jesus, in true Jesus form, replies with a deep spiritual truth that sends Nicodemus into an intellectual quandary. Jesus is saying that what he is here to do, this new thing that the Messiah is bringing about, the kingdom of God, cannot be seen unless someone is born again. So what Nicodemus brings to the table in the way of spiritual knowledge, intellectual understanding of the scriptures, and even a track record of strong integrity, purity, and self-control isn't enough. He's saying that the only way to see, verse 3, and the only way to enter, verse 5, God's kingdom is to start over. On our own, we are not able to see or enter God's kingdom. So when we, we must ask ourselves, what must one do to see what God is actually doing to enter God's kingdom? And we can see the answer here. One must be born again. Another way of understanding John's word usage is to be born from above or born of the spirit. We see this in verse six. Even the act that proceeds truly seeing and entering God's kingdom, this being born from above, requires God's movement. And the poetic point of this whole thing is that Nicodemus, 
this authoritative, learned, and powerful man doesn't even understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that to really understand, one must start over. And this starting over isn't something we can just do on our own. We need to be born of the Spirit. Do you see this? This brings me to my first point for this morning. Spiritual rebirth precedes new life. When we are born into this world, we begin dying. From the second that you were born, your physical life began to move closer to its natural end. I'm not trying to be morbid or even somber. It's just a fact of life. Like the old Benjamin Franklin quote, in this world, nothing is certain but death and taxes. So whether you live to be 100 years old or tomorrow is your last day on this earth, you will die. I will die. So when the book of John promises life forevermore, we should all be intrigued. Is, if there's a way that we can escape death, then shouldn't we be curious to learn more? Shouldn't we be captivated by this idea? Shouldn't we be willing to trade anything for it? And that's where I think most of us get stuck. We, like Nicodemus, think of life as only physical. The idea of a grown man or a woman going back into his or her mother's womb seems preposterous and gross. But Jesus isn't speaking of this physical life. Jesus didn't primarily come to save us from physical death. No, what Jesus is telling Nicodemus, what John is beginning to unveil through this story is that in order to even see God's kingdom, just to glimpse it, we have to be reborn. We need to be born from above. Without a spiritual rebirth, there can be no spiritual life. And friends, without a spiritual life, all that is left is to walk in spiritual death towards physical death. Spiritual rebirth precedes new life. But Jake, how do we get this new life? Or another way of asking this question is what I imagine Nicodemus would have asked if he actually understood who he was sharing a conversation with. Jesus, what must I do to be born from above? What must I do to get new life? Well, Jesus, being the good, kind, compassionate, and patient man who knew what was inside of, the, of Nicodemus tells him, look at verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Here, Jesus is referencing a story from Israel's history that would have been very, very well known to Nicodemus. Here's the gist of the story. Back in the book of Numbers, in chapter 21, there's a story of God's people being disgruntled towards God. Classic, right? Well, here's what's going on. God had rescued the Israelites from their Egyptian slave owners, and he had promised them a new land that would be different from anything that they had ever experienced as a people. Well, before they got to this lush and bountiful promised land, they had to walk through the wilderness. And not too dissimilar to us, when we go through valleys and the wildernesses in our lives, the people started to complain. They complained against God and against their leader, and God sent snakes into their camp as a punishment for their ingratitude and their blasphemy. These snakes were biting people, and people were dying from their deadly venom. So just as we tend to do when we have a need, 
that we can't meet on our own or when we're in crisis, they turned to God and they cried out for help. They asked for mercy from God and God delivered them. God told Moses, their leader, build a serpent from bronze and set it on a pole. Then anyone who is bitten by one of these poisonous snakes could look up to the raised bronze snake on the pole and they would live. So when Jesus tells Nicodemus that just as Moses lifted up the snake, so also the son of man would be lifted up, referring to himself getting up on the cross at the end of this book, he's answering the question that is never explicitly asked by Nicodemus, our question What must I do to be born from above? I want to see the kingdom. I want to enter the kingdom. What must I do, Jesus? Look to me and believe. And church, this is such good news for us. We have the answer to the problem of our impending death. The venom in our veins doesn't have to lead to death. What must I do to get new life? Believe. Believe in me. This brings me to my second point. New life comes from belief. Do you see this? It's like Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, my son, you don't get it because you're looking at it the wrong way. You don't need to be physically reborn. You need to be spiritually reborn. All of your accomplishments, all of your knowledge, all of your striving, they're not enough. You must be born of the Spirit. And I must do this work in you. And the new life, the eternal life that I've come to bring you only comes through belief. Belief in me. I am the greater bronze snake. When I'm raised up for your sins, for your shortcomings, for all that you've done, look to me. I won't condemn you. I offer forgiveness. Do you believe me? Would you just believe me? Friend, if you're in this room and you have never believed, you've doubted your whole life. But like Nicodemus, you're a mixed bag of curiosity and timidity. It's okay. He knows what is inside of you. All you have to do is look up and believe in him. It's a simple step, but it takes courage. Listen, I get it. This stuff sounds insane. You might be like, preacher, this is crazy. You're up here talking about snakes and poles and something as simple as belief is going to get me eternal life. What's the catch? No catch. The gospel is simple and incredible news. God loves you. He took on your punishment for your sins on that cross. He defeated the enemy. He rose from the dead and he offers you life with nothing more from you than belief in him. New life comes from belief. Let's keep going in our text. Picking back up in John 3.16, one of the most commonly known verses in all of our time. Here it is. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. 
Listen, church, this passage of scripture, John 3, 16, is so familiar that I think we've lost our awe for its simplistic and the glorious hope that's found in these sentences. And I think that that's a shame. We've reduced this to just a meaningless bumper sticker or a necklace that we kiss for good luck before a big game. I think it's a shame because we miss so many things about God's word when we read the scriptures as just words on a page that we think of as old or repetitive, contradictory, irrelevant, boring, difficult to understand, or maybe even wrong. Listen, Listen again to these all too common words. Close your eyes if you have to. Let them wash over you and well up in your soul a new song, a new hope, new life. For God loved the world in this way. Or as our sermon series is entitled, For God So Loved, that he gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. Here's what I want us to see from this final section of our text. New life begins now. You see, many of us have been reading or perhaps remembering John 3.16 incorrectly. We've been in church long enough to hear that Jesus brings life and eternal life is found only in him and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life or God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But for many of us in this room, and oftentimes for me, we tend to read this with our own little spin. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not go to hell, but will go to heaven. I mean, we know that this isn't how the verse reads, but isn't this often how we read it, how we understand it? I think we do this for one of a few reasons. One, we are like Nicodemus, and we think of God's kingdom of eternal life as something that isn't real until it's physical. So the idea of heaven, we're okay with because it's real, yes, but it's not really real until we're dead. That's when God's kingdom will actually matter. Or maybe it's the second reason. We, We aren't interested in the life that the Spirit offers. Do we want to go to heaven? Of course. Who doesn't? But we're only interested in a belief that changes our destination after physical death not our experience now of this physical life. John addresses this person in verse 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. Listen, if you're sitting in this room, you're sitting at Northeast and you want the pleasures of the darkness but not the presence of the light? You want to live freely in your evil deeds now, but still go to heaven when you die? I'm here to tell you that that deal doesn't exist. But Jake, I thought you said that Jesus offers new life, eternal life to sinners who are walking in the evil deeds of darkness. Absolutely, yes. But listen, Jesus's offer of new life isn't just to meet the prerequisites for getting into heaven. Yes, Jesus's life, death, and resurrection does bring us the rightness that we need in order to enter his kingdom, but it doesn't stop there. 
Eternal life isn't just about heaven and getting into God's future kingdom. Those who are spiritually reborn into new life through genuine belief, they don't keep on sinning, at least not like they used to before belief. The Apostle Paul, who writes several books in the Bible, teaches us that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus and that the Spirit of God dwells in those that are in Christ, making them dead to sin and alive to walk in righteousness and obedience, godly obedience. This means that when we truly believe in Jesus, His Spirit comes into us and dwells inside of us. And His Spirit, as He lives inside of us, makes us continually, over time, transformed more and more into Jesus' likeness, into perfection. This won't equate to a sinless life life here. Christians sin all the time. I sin all the time. You sin all the time. No, we won't be perfect like Jesus, but this new life will lead to more brokenness over our sins. It will lead to more awareness of our need for God, and it will lead to growth, spiritual growth. So friend, if you're sitting here and you're wanting to live in darkness, gratifying the things that your sinful flesh desires, and you would say that you have believed in Jesus, I'm I'm here to tell you that true belief leads to eternal life that starts now. And isn't this true for all of us in the room? I mean, I think we all, myself included, we choose darkness sometimes to walk in death. We must stop. We must stop choosing death. We must must stop, guys. When we choose to deceive, we choose death. When we choose to gossip, we choose death. When we choose pornography, we choose death. When we choose to pursue wealth over righteousness, we choose death. When we choose to count on our record of good deeds as a way of earning God's favor, we choose death. When we choose to cheat on our spouse, we choose death. When we choose to mistreat others because of their skin color, we choose death. When we choose to look at our bodies in the mirror with hatred for what's not right, we choose death. When we choose to medicate our inner hurt with alcohol, food, exercise, sleep, hours and hours of mindless numbing of Netflix, ESPN, or Instagram, we choose death. Listen, if you're in this room and you're not broken over your sinful deeds, then you might not have the Spirit of God in you. You might not actually believe. You're dead. You're walking in death. How do I know this? How can I say this? Look at verse 18. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. And later, for everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. Is that you? Are you walking in the darkness, hating the light because you love evil? Well, praise be to God that the author of life didn't come to condemn you, didn't come to condemn me, but to forgive to save. He came to save us from our sins. And this saving is the beginning of true life. This brings me back to what I shared earlier. True life must first be new life. I've been chewing on this idea for 
the last two month, months, I knew that I was going to get to preach John 3.16. I mean, any amateur preacher should love such a slam dunk text. Just get up there and give them the old gospel. Eternal life, who wants it? But there's something about this text that I just can't shake. When I think about my life, how I make decisions, how my attitude is most often affected by my circumstances, how my desires are often first for my pleasure and my flourishing, how I'm often too scared or too tired to share the love of Jesus with others. And when I think about you, I think about my church and the things that I think you struggle with. When I think on these things, I can't shake this idea. What would it be like if Mercy Church the Jesus followers who are part of Mercy Church actually lived like this promise of eternal life is a promise for life now. Not just a promise for life after physical death, but a promise for life now. Life on September 25th, 2022. Life here. Life here in Charlotte. Life here in our homes, in our jobs, in our relationships, in our friend groups, in our families. This is the promise, church. When Jesus says that he offers eternal life, when John tells us that he's written this book so that the readers may have life in his name, when John 3.16 tells us that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, these words are talking about life now. Yes, then, but now. And this is what eternal life now could look like, an abundant life. John 10, 10, I've come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. A transformed life. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. A desire-quenching life. John 6, 35, I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. No one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. A life full of goodness and love. Psalm 23, 6, only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live, a life that overflows. Church, John 7, 38, the one who believes in me, Jesus, as the scripture has said, will have streams of flowing water flow deep from within him, a life of abundant joy and eternal pleasures in his presence. Psalm 16, 11, you reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. A life where Christ is actually living in us. Galatians 2, 20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Church, this is the promise that Jesus offers. He's come so that we may have life, eternal life, new life, true life. But true life must first be new life. So wherever you're at today, he knows what's inside of you. However these words land on your soul, know this, my friend. Every decision that we make moves us deeper towards life or death. We can choose to live, to fix our eyes on Jesus and walk in the newness of life that he freely gives us. 
Those who with deadly venom in their veins look up to him hanging on the cross and believe and trust in him. We can choose this life or we can choose death. We can continue to walk in darkness. We can continue to do evil and to hide from the light. We can keep pretending like we won't get caught or that it's not that big of a deal. It's not really hurting anyone. We can choose death. The invitation to life is for all. Everybody. Which will you choose? Listen, church, as we close out this time in God's word, I want us to respond. I believe that God wants to do a work in this room. I believe that he wants to do a work in every one of us, every single person. Listen, he knows what is inside of you. He knows what is inside of me this morning. He knows and he doesn't condemn you. Whether you're a lover of Jesus who's sitting in this room with some type of sin that no one knows about that's eating you up from the inside, or you've never believed in Jesus, at least not truly, he forgives you. He saves. Later in your Bible, there's a book called 1 John where our same author writes these words. 1 John 1.8, if we say... We have no sin. We are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here's what we're going to do. The band is going to come up here just like they always do. They're going to play a song called Amazing Grace. A wonderful song to bring us up from the depths of our brokenness into worshipness, worship, gratitude, and newness of life. But as they're playing this song, I want us to use this time for confession. This isn't something that we do often around here, but confessing is a universal practice that arises from our need for reconciliation with God. It is a springboard for forgiveness. When we confess to God, He freely forgives us for all of our shortcomings. Look at the verse we just read. He is faithful and righteous to forgive. We achieve this forgiveness by acknowledging our wrongdoings and then turning away from them. We're going to do this together as a family by praying and talking to God. Now you can pray in your seat. You can stand up and pray. You can kneel in the aisle You can go to the back of the room or the front of the room. You can pray alone. You can pray with somebody. But confess your sins. And we're all going to do this. This isn't just for one group of people. Every single one of us has something in our heart to confess to our good, kind, and forgiving God. We're all sinners. John tells us, if you say you have no sin, you're deceiving yourself. We're all sinners, equal playing field. So together, let's confess.